Welcome to Nox Mente. Tonight's guest is Jason Liu. Jason's work has explored the outer reaches of human culture and possibility through both science fiction and journalistic expeditions in some of the world's strangest belief systems. He runs the blog Ultra Culture, teaches at magic.me, and has written for Boing Boing, Vice News, Esquire Online, Dangerous Minds, and many more. Counterculture publishing legend Are You Serious from Mondo 2000 called him, quote, one of humanity's best mutant scouts on the frontiers of human experience, unquote. Jason, welcome to the show. Likewise. Been looking forward to this. Hopefully there are no YouTube gremlins because we were just dealing with them. No, there's just me forgetting to turn your mics on. <laughs> oh my goodness it's a, the last the last death thralls of a retrograde mercury always the worst oh that must be it yeah yeah youtube, youtube is twitchy uh but you know when you think about i don't i i, don't, I forget the stat but when you there's millions and millions of hours of video uploaded every day and right it's never been possible or never happened <laughs> in all of history it's even in my lifetime i remember when there were you know, when it was just broadcast television. I remember when cable was a big deal. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we can't totally fault uh, YouTube for not being able to catch up with totally with the, the, the unstoppable curve of human evolution. It is astounding. And this is the good side of tech. This right here. It's like completely, ma utterly magical to other periods of time. Here we are looking at our, well, they're not black now, but the black screens and interacting live time. The black cubes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, obviously I'm fascinated and, and obsessed with technology, but I think that technology, particularly now, allows, uh, it makes possible all of the things that you read about in old magical grimoires. And in a way, I think that magic is our best language for understanding the world we live in right now, because we live in a world that runs as if by magic. I mean, I yes. can go outside my, you know, it's like I, I live in a, a sorcerer's world now just because of technology. I mean, obviously because of magic magic also, but, you know, it's like I can go outside and summon a magic carpet, also known <laughs> as a paper. Yes. You know, my, my house is like, uh, you know, what's that Fantasia, the Sorcerer's Apprentice with Mickey Mouse, because I've got floor cleaning robots. Right going around you know, <laughs> have this conversation i can broadcast my thoughts to the, the entire planet you know at a in a fraction of a second you know on, on social media and and uh it's unbelievable it's so you know, true it's it so really true is. though it is and and it, it's exciting i do i do kind of worry about like 5g and stuff like that but that's another conversation another day i'm curious about that have they has there been have there been any, any studies that have come out on 5g because yeah i mean it's like you know the, the you know are we going to all be microwaving ourselves when they start i i, I haven't seen any um uh, official studies on it well it's not been rolled out like this so there's you know we'll have to wait 20 years but you'd, it, you'd think there'd be you know a couple years of scientific study before they started rolling it out 
that they haven't done that. But we know that those waves are not conducive to human flesh, human organic matter. They move right through and they're damaging. So that's some of the spectrums, even up in the uh, V2K range, the voice to skill technology range. Yeah. So there's reason to pause. There was a thing recently, and I don't remember the exact details, so I might get it slightly wrong, but the they they proved or they showed pretty conclusively that the cell phone industry, you know, big big cell phone knew fairly early on that cell phones did play a causative role in brain cancer, and mm-hmm. they kind of they kind of did a Philip Morris on it, or they brushed it under the carpet, oh, yeah. even though they knew, you know, yeah, people, people would of- give up their phones. <laughs> And it's funny, like one of my friends just died from brain cancer. She's in her, oh, I think she just turned 50, but she had had this tumor for 20 years. Ironically, that's when she got her phone and she never used earbuds. Hmm. So it's not, it's not a scientific thing, but it's interesting that it was on that side of her brain, right by, right behind her ear and um, hmm. started at the same time. And she was always on the phone. This is our business with doing doing oh. stuff. So, you know, interesting. I don't know. Wow. So yeah, let's, I... let's dive into Nox Minte. It's uh, okay. electromagnetic frequency food for thought. Yes. <laughs> Fodder. Fodder for the old time churning wheel. So, Jason, tell us about your the earliest part of your life that you remember. And... Um, <laughs> And so, and the details that stick out. So, you know, all the stuff like pop culture, like what entertained you, uh, could be board games, could be cartoons, could be building forts in the woods. Were you around the woods? Were you in the city? Uh, yeah, no, I was always around nature for sure. I mean, I grew up in the eighties and in Southern California and uh, I was always around nature, but also always around technology. I think I got my first computer. I got my first, I got a Mac 512. If anyone's old enough to remember that, it was Whoa. the first. Second, <laughs> it was before the Mac Plus. My family had one, and I think 1985. I had one too. And Cost like five grand go. with the printer, right? Well, I, I don't. I mean, I, I wasn't yeah. paying for it. So had the floppy, <laughs> had the floppy drive in the front, 128k. Yeah, and it was. Um, and I, I from so I think wait, it was 1985. Maybe it was 1986 because I was five. And I went into, uh, I've lived in the Macintosh operating system ever since, <laughs> essentially, you know. Um, but I was, you know, immersed in, you know, reading nonstop. I taught myself to read when I was two. And I, my whole life has been consumed with reading and writing ever since, I think. it's, it's uh, and, and in a way, um, and also early on, I became, because, you know, because I was, a reader and because you know i was reading comics and you know i love the x-men i love ninja turtles like the idea of mutation the, uh, the 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 idea that there could be future beneficial mutations of humanity this idea fascinated me very very much very early on and i became i i, I very consciously decided i think at an early age that that's what i wanted to do with my life i wanted to assist in the evolution of humanity you know or because i wanted to be in the (laughs) x-men you know Uh, because i felt different i felt different and i wanted you know mutant friends who were different also nothing wrong were you an only child no 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 
I am the oldest child though. So did you, so you, you spent the time in the woods and you loved nature. Were you out there doing, were you building forts? Like how much time did you have? I'm trying to get at like maybe the bigger symbol for your unconscious. Was it the woods? Well, Water. we might be here for a while because remember, I'm a practicing magician. So as am I. <laughs> you got it. You're gonna. We're gonna have to sit here going through the whole of Libra Seven Seven Seven. I'm good at. I'm good at uh, amending and keeping it moving. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you one story, right? Which is that when I grew up, um, there was. I spent a lot of time digging. I was fascinated with archaeology, and I spent a lot of time digging for artifacts uh, in the woods. And, and I became fascinated with the idea of uncovering uh, mysteries and uncovering things that other people didn't know to look for. So that, in a way, is a symbol of the unconscious, right? Because it's, you know, what is doing unconscious work with the unconscious? What is doing dream work or, or psychotherapy or magic? but digging into the, the lower strata of the unconscious mind, trying to find symbols or ideas or the fount of you know, inspiration if you're an artist. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're doing it in psychotherapy, it's simply to understand yourself. Whereas if you're an artist, you know, it's, it's perhaps looking for artistic inspiration or looking for a way to understand uh, you know, the human experience, perhaps. so. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think like most people who are interested in this type of thing, I was a pretty solitary and imaginative kid. I mean, I was, I spent most of my, you know, I spent most of my time either in nature or in the world of the imagination. So that's excellent. And it's, um, I agree. I think there's nothing more pertinent to talking about the unconscious than actually digging in the dirt. It's, I mean, it's, it's a straightforward thing, but a lot of times, you know, people grow up in cities and not, so it's, it's good to see where, where one comes from. Were you born into any particular religious practice in your house? Uh, no, I mean, my, my family was nominally Christian. I think we went to church, uh, like maybe three times when I was a kid. And so, so that's what happens when you don't, when you, you know, that's what happens when the uh, liberals raise their children without religion. They turn into sorcerers and, and <laughs> witch doctors like myself. So there's a certain extent to which the right is correct. You know, <laughs> sometimes I look around my life, particularly in my 20s, when I was spending a lot of time in occult groups and things like that and trying to be, you know, the prince of darkness and gother than everyone else. You know, there would be times when I look around. Like I'm living in a Jack Chick tract. Like literally my comic book is a Jack Chick track, tract and Jack Chick was right about pretty much everything. <laughs> oh so, uh, so yeah. Um, but uh, to, your, to your original question, uh, uh, no. Uh, but I was fascinated with religion from an early age because, you know, I had liberal parents. Uh, they'd had negative experiences with religion and they had, Decide, decided in a very kind of progressive 1980s parents way to not raise me particularly religious, although they gave me the broad uh, ideas of it. I guess I was nominally Christian. There was just an assumption that we were kind of Christian, but we never really did any Christian stuff. Um, but I had, a, um, I had a fascination with religion, particularly the book of Revelation, 
go figure. Um, the juicy that, stuff. Right. I had a family relative who gave me a, you know, saw that I was being raised by a godless liberal family and I think gave me a, a copy of the Bible and a, like a, an illustrated version of the Bible for, for kids. And, you know, I mean, everything was just boring to me. It was like, but except for the book of revelation, cause that's the book that has monsters in it. Right? It's like, like, like sea monsters and things like yes. that. Action. Yeah. The symbols so just, a, the symbols are amazing in that book, by the way. Right. Um, and, and so I became fascinated with the idea of the beast and Babylon and, and, um, all that good stuff, you know, Leviathan. And, mm-hmm. um, I think, also, the numerology. I remember becoming very, becoming very fascinated with the, the numbers, the numerology, and the codes in Revelation. And you know, of course, I've just done this book, John D. and the Empire of Angels, which is almost six hundred pages on how that book has shaped the last five hundred years of world history. Because I think that it's it's interesting having that upbringing. Because you know, my default reality is kind of secular liberalism. So I can have, but, but by the same token, I've spent my entire life immersing myself in religion and, and going through every type of religious system that I could uh, uh, find. Uh, my friend uh, Kenrick McDowell described me as a, uh, or he said that what I was doing is I was, I was a journalist that embedded myself within the world's spiritual traditions. I thought that was a great, great way of putting it. So, so I really think, you know, one of the core, the, the core thesis of my work really is that you can't understand people and you can't understand world history without understanding religion because religion is what people believe. You know, religions are the stories that guide people's lives. And so, yeah, although I wasn't raised particularly religious, you know, it's like my, my life has become consumed with mm-hmm. uh, trying to understand that, you know, try, not just religion, but obviously esoteric, magical and, uh, esoteric the esoteric side of religion in, in, i think it's just sorry. fascinating to me it is very much so uh in one way i can look at this and say since you're a tech, technology journalist you dig into different texts you you aggregate knowledge on all the different technologies that are out there you probably at some level view magic as technology the, i yeah, pers- absolutely personally i do so and I see, personally, I see religions as APIs to that magic, if you will. Oh, so, how does explain how that works? I'm curious. Well, the, the religion is the, uh, is, is the same as the study of magic. It's the same, it's, it's its own type of magic, you know? Like Christian magic, that's the religion, keeps that all together, Christian magic. And Hebrew magic for, for Jewish religion, everybody's got their own magic, Right. But it's just their method of accessing the system that everyone has access to. I think it's just a focused, a far more focused look at. I didn't mean to hijack the conversation this way. I thought you probably had this viewpoint, but. Well, I'm, I'm curious. So, so if the religion is the API, that means that the, the religion is like the interface between the public, uh, you know, the, the great unwashed, as it were, mm-hmm. and the people who are actually doing the esoteric practices. Is that kind of what you mean? Pretty much. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at, I mean, if you look at any of these things, it's true for anything. I mean, you know, it's it's like a small handful of people, only a small handful of people actually do the work of human, keeping human civilization afloat. And everyone else benefits from that work for the Mm -hmm. most part. 
Um, although everyone, of course, is interdependent and everyone is required to keep the whole system going. The, the broad majority of people throughout world history have not had the time and resources to plunge into the unconscious or the esoteric world. It's, like, it's just not feasible. If you look at a place like Tibet, um, you know, which arguably the, the Tibetan Buddhists did more to explore the realms of consciousness than perhaps anyone else in a more, a more concerted and organized and methodical way, mm-hmm. you know, Tibet was essentially uh, you know, a, a, a feudal society that was set up to support a priesthood caste. Right. And people were, it was kind of like, uh, you know, feudalism in the Middle Ages, but set up to support, um, you know, psychonauts in a way. I mean, I, I don't want to mangle the history of this. Well, I would look at the but, Druids that way, for sure. The Druids were the psychonauts. Okay. Or any of these other cultures, you know, it's always been for a privileged release. It's always been for a privileged elite. And sometimes that elite just means that those people are there to... Uh, facilitate the experience of everyone else in the case of a shaman or you know the, a shaman is just like a family doctor in a way you know they're, they're there to you know so it's a job it's a job title true mm-hmm. true uh, but as the um spiritual representative of a tribe that's the, the connotation i'm at i'm not sure what you mean well in some some cultures a shaman are the priest of the tribe if you will people will go to them for advice for help for, for psychological help they're the psychologist, sure. you know, and if it's sure. too, you know, sometimes you need to get in that sweat lodge for a while. <laughs> sure. But I guess also... I'm getting at the power dynamic there. You know, sometimes, sometimes some cultures place, uh, in, you know, psychonauts in a, uh, in a heightened place of social privilege. And in some cultures, they're seen as just another specialist. There's also the aspect of those that are born to it. And the elders often, you know, well, part of part of the role is keeping your eye on who's who's born to this particular work um, that goes outside of this societal structure to to access what is outside the circle, essentially, and bring it back in. Yeah, absolutely. One of the interesting things about studying these things and also doing a lot of travel is I was thinking about this last night actually. When we when we see when we look at other cultures and we look at the rituals and and shamanism of other cultures, they seem very it seems very different and strange to us. But if you explore a lot of it and you travel a lot and then you come back to your own culture, you you see how our culture is the same. You know, it's like it's for instance, I mean we don't have shamans per se, but we have um you know, we have psychologists, we have all types of, um, you know, mental health specialists, we have artists, we have, um, you know, musicians. Uh, and, and of course, now that role has been expanded so much because of the internet. And so, I mean, I'm obviously not the first person to make this analogy, but at the beginning of history, there was only one specialist, and that was the tribal shaman, right? And as time went on, it became many specialists. So then there, there were, you know, that role was split up. So there was the doctor, the psychologist, the uh, apothecary, you know, the, the herbalist, the pharmacist, all those roles were split up and everyone got a little piece of the shaman's cloak. But um, it's always fascinating to me how our culture is also immersed in uh, rituals and superstitious thought and, um, uh, you know, magic, magic ritual. And we just don't see it because we're too close up to it. I mean, 
you know, funerals, high school graduations, uh, uh, you know, little moments of commemoration, all of this stuff. I mean, our culture is just as immersed in, in ritual and magical thinking as any other, you know, and, and it's often said that our culture is cut off from spirit and people kind of make this glib Alan Watts type kind of point, like saying that, oh, like the West is not spiritual and we, we've lost our spirituality. At this point in my life, I don't actually think it's true. I think that it's, we just don't see it because we're too close up to it. You know, it becomes easier to see in other cultures because we like to fetishize the other, you know. I, I 100% agree. And, and, and just backing up on that a bit, I have always thought that it is very important to get out of your nest get out of where you come from and go out into the world. It's very important. So many people don't do it. It's amazing. And I think no matter what, no matter how many books you read, no matter how much meditation you do, no matter how much dream work and now internet looking and video surfing, it's just not the same as physically leaving the nest and going out where things are unsafe possibly or new, exciting, um, the world opens up and the more places you go, the more it opens up. And, and the more it opens up, as you said, the more you see when you come back these same dynamics. We definitely are a society based on ritual. I mean, it's, it starts with the first one, your birthday. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you come in and, and you're immediately immersed in that right. Just coming right of out birth. of the womb is a ritual. The whole, and so, all the medical stuff that here. happens around it, all that, you know, the, the first slap on the back, the taking of the footprint, it's all ritual, I would argue. Yeah, everything. Everything. Human life is ritual. I mean, like, I, I you know, when I first started in, in getting in, interested in magic, I, you know, was bought into all the kind of Crowley ideas about it and gas magic and all that. But my viewpoint of magic at this point is, you know, I like to say it's an emergent property of just being conscious. It's, it's an emergent property of human consciousness. And what I mean by that is human beings are pattern creating animals. They're ritual creating animals. They, they're, our role in a way is we're, we're the time binding animal. Our role is to make meaning out of chaos by imposing meaning on it. And of course, there's no ultimate truth. But uh, we have to impose meaning on our experience in order to structure it. And in a way, that's what we do. In the same way that a spider weaves a web or a snail, you know, assembles a shell, human beings create meaning. We weave nets of meaning around everything around us. And the way that we do that is, is through ritual. I mean, it's through story and ritual. And that's what magic is. Um, and it's, it's, some, it's not something, you know, like people who get into magic have this idea. It's like, oh, you level up as a magician. Like, I'm a level 10 warlock, you know, like that type of thing, you know, the degree of life. <laughs> yeah. Are you? And I think, oh, well, I would least, hope you'd be higher level by now. At least. Uh, well, I mean, you know, and if you want to count the spheres of the tree of life, what, well, what level <laughs> yes, system are we yes. in? World of Warcraft? <laughs> yeah, D &D. Yeah. The, Which the, dice are we rolling? The level, cl yeah, the level cap edition, on WoW went up to First edition, <laughs> Pathfinder. <laughs> uh yeah no, well yeah so 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 you choose you know I, i'm all, i'm the highest level in all systems i assure you <laughs> <laughs> nice but, uh, the great uh, i am well actually i'm the dm so so that's even more uh more oh. right it's infinite but i'm adm i'm adm and isn't that the point of uh isn't that the goal of esoteric practice right to become 
aware enough that you're you become a dm instead of a player yes yes i digress i digress um uh what was the point i was gonna make oh so uh yeah people in magic have this idea that it's like a power you accrue and that you get better at it it's like yeah that's true to some extent but really it's a it's 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 a group activity right and i don't mean a bunch of people standing around in robes i mean that human beings weave patterns of meaning simply by associating with each other we're always Right in this moment, we're, we're creating a, we're, we're like, you know, spiders creating a, a, a net of meeting, right? And all the people listening to this are part of it, you know, like it's it all, we're all creating this uh, at the moment. So that's what I think magic is. I think it emerges out of consciousness. I think it emerges out of um, uh, reality. But one of the great things about traveling and, and seeing other cultures is understanding, is seeing how other people do that. You go to India and you see their pattern that they've woven. You go to China. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't been to China. I'd love to go to China. You see a different pattern. And you understand how fundamentally similar we all are and yet how different. Uh, I mean, similar in the fact that human beings are all basically the same all over the world. They just want to, you know, uh, drink a beer, you know, hang out with their loved ones and be left alone for the most part. Um, and... Uh, you know, and yet we're so different in, in a way, or, or we, I don't, I, I don't want to say different. I think that we create, we are such an, we're an infinitely creative species and the world is almost infinite in the beauty and meaning that human beings have woven from chaos. And so I don't know how anybody could be bored or cynical or um, down on, on that. Although I certainly have my moments just when I consider the ecological crisis and things like that. But uh, it's 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 amazing the magic that humanity is constantly in the business of creating. That's a bit well, of a rant. This is, but it it is exactly why speaking of and talking about dreams is dreams like birth and death are kind of like a leveling ground. We all have the opportunity every time we close our eyes. And then, I mean, we could go into way esoteric and talk about waking and within the dream here and now, but for simplicity's sake, um, it, it is a leveler and we all have an opportunity. We all have our experiences and there's a million and one ways to interpret what's going on. And in that, in your earliest childhood, do you have any recall of early dreams you had had? I'd really have to think about it, uh, not to the top of my head. I'd really have to go back and and do some digging. When you were young, did you do you recall? So this is in general. Do you recall ever having like um, night terrors or nightmares? Yeah, I'm sure I must have, but not not that was over. Not anything that was overwhelming. I don't think. You know, I mean, we're we're talking what you know 30 years ago now at least so is there were you ever um did you ever have a thing with like in the basement or under the bed in the closet all that kind of stuff like that kind of did you scare easily or creep yourself out (laughs) it's a better way to put it i think no no i i was but i what i was was and still am is preternaturally concerned with the passing of time. Right? Would like you elaborate? Always, yeah, well, this is always the most, um, this was always the most disturbing thing to me. 
you know, that time is the, you know, to everything, a time erodes everything and nothing can escape it. And right. I was constantly aware of the flux like nature of existence and the fact that no matter what you do, it will erode and be forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, becoming aware of that is very existentially disconcerting, particularly at a young age, but as an adult too, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm always reminded of the scene. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a cliche, but the, the, the scene in the seventh seal, the Ingmar Bergman movie where mm -hmm. Max Lightow is playing chess with death. It's one of the best, you know, depictions of the human experience probably ever by any artist. I agree. And I, yeah, I mean, that's what it is. And it's fascinating to me, you know, particularly the magical, pers the Buddhist perspective or the magical, per magical perspective or the Taoist perspective is understanding that and coming to terms with it. I mean, this is like one of the most important things for becoming a mature adult, in my opinion, because once you understand that uh, and you understand that it's inescapable, most of what human beings do becomes comical. I mean, it's like, look how hard people try to convince other people that they exist, you know, whether it's through doing something great and noticeable with their life or becoming some great politician or Donald Trump or becoming just, you know, becoming a school shooter or something so destructive that other people have to notice them. It's like all those are, I see those all as futile attempts to escape the, to escape oblivion, you know, to escape the inescapable, which is the fact that time will, time erodes everything. And all of this will be forgotten very quickly. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, how many people do we remember from the 19th century? You know, how many, name me, name me five great artists from the 19th century. Well, I could go, I could pontificate on that, but I'm a trained artist and live as an artist. So I'm not okay. your normal Joe there. Um, <clears throat> well, 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 okay. So, so it would be more challenging for me to do artists, but name me five great writers from the 19th century. Oh, geez. Um, all right. Oh, the on the spot stuff is crazy, Jules but Verne. Hess, right. Um, no, good Lord. Hess, Hess was 20th century. Jules Wasn't Verne. he? I thought he was 1890s. H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells. He might've had some, I believe Herman had, I'm going to wiki it. Real I quick. thought it was 1890s. Wordsworth, Longfellow. Um, I thought Poe was... Burns. 1890s. Poe. Uh, Hess was born in 1877, but he didn't so, start writing until 1904. But still, he's he's you know he's of that period. Um, anyway, Longfellow, Wordsworth. I'm still including Hess because I just I love him so much. Um, oh, geez, was Conrad 1890s or is he? Later, yep. Conrad was well. Uh, hmm, that's a good question. He might have uh, Joseph Conrad. Let's look. Uh, period. He first started writing. He his I think his first book was eighteen ninety five. Yeah. So, so Heart I of mean, Darkness I, yeah, oh, Heart of Darkness is brilliant. I'm a I'm an av I read a book a week still. I not okay. your latest book. That's a it's gonna take me a minute. But I'm a, an avid reader, and so I don't know. That. So great. So so we're we're in an intellectual elite then. So, but still, I mean, it's still even for. But but so this is even makes the point even stronger, right? So if even for educated people, to to try and remember five great writers of the 19th century is you know it's 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 not you know it's not trivial, and 
now, I think about any performing arts field, any artistic field or business. I mean, look at, think how much jealousy and anger people have towards each other and how everyone is competing to be the greatest and to be remembered, mm-hmm. you know, like, and people die and they're gone and they're forgotten, you know, it's like. It's so surface. It, it, you know, I, I try not, at this point in my life, I actually try not to be judgmental. I, of course, have been there. Um, and now I'm just trying to respect everyone's process. But it's this idea can get me down sometimes with my own work. Like I, I um, you know, and you know this, and I think anyone that's creating that also sees the nature of everything eventually fades away and goes away, will go away at some point. And um, that it seems nihilistic or futile. However, in the end, it's about you and your personal work, your personal engine uh, furnace. And so that's where I find my will to continue creatively, personally. Do you, um, Sure. So and, and so one of the reasons why I ask about the early dreams is because it's tied directly into memory. And it's hard to parse out sometimes what's memory and what's a dream how are they different they're both different states of consciousness really you're accessing a different realm in a way because we ascribe memory as something that is allegedly real really happened and and dreams for most people are some sort of auxiliary function um but I think it's poignant when we try to go back to the earliest memories and then go back and remember how we were dreaming and how blurry that is. So when when is when is your first memory of a dream? Like how old were you and do you have that imagery still accessible? I couldn't tell you. I'd have to sit and think about it for a long time. I do were you a dreamer? I mean, do you, are you a person that when when you think back I was you like I I was always a dreamer. I had dreams or I wasn't a dreamer. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But I think that it's it's fascinating just to look at some of the things you said there, when we talk about memory being real, I mean, of course, we know that memory is not real, right? I mean, it's not, right. it's not possible <laughs> as court evidence. We know if you ask any police interrogator, they, they can tell you that memory is completely faulty. Mm-hmm. And yet we represent our, uh, our experience to ourselves and we use it to define ourselves. You guys must have read the book, um, Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep. You know what? I have not. Oh, you have to so read that. That it is on my list since we've started Nasmente. That's a must. So in terms of dreams, I think that the Tibetans have the best, most advanced view of, you know, the most advanced technology and the, the most advanced language for talking about dreams, at least that I've come across. And they talk about three levels, or at least that book, you know, that school of Buddhism, they talk about three different levels of dreams. And uh, one is, there's one that is just the most surface level of dream is essentially digestive, right? It's like you're processing some type of experience that happened to you during the day. Uh, and of course, this is the, the explanation of dreams that's usually used by psychologists or has classically been used for dreams, that it's you know, just a way of the brain di- digesting, in a way, activity that's happened during the day. Um, the second layer underneath that is karmic dreams, Meaning you're dreaming about either events in this lifetime or in other lifetimes that you are working out the karma of. You're attempting to release. And when I say working out karma, that sounds too mystical. But my take on that is 
you're working out and relieving, releasing the charge. You're releasing the emotional burden of uh, the, the knot of something that's happened in your life or in another life. And you're trying to work through karma that way. For that reason, the Tibetans cultivate the dream state because they, they realize that they can be meditating 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the third level, which is the occult level. There's the, the third level is like the precognitive dream, the dream in which uh, it, it's basically lucid dreaming, but it's a lucid dream in which occult activity can be undertaken. And this is the, the hardest level of, of dream to get to. Uh, so I find this fascinating. And what, what you know, I, I teach a course in lucid dreaming at magic.me, which is my, my school for magic. And in my own life, I've discovered, you know, you're asking me about early dreams and things like that. I've developed a very interesting view on this in my life, which is that dreaming is a muscle that has to be uh, exercised to, to, to develop it. Um, and most people, in fact, many students who come to me uh, all, almost invariably tell me that they can't remember their dreams. Uh, they don't remember any of their dreams. And they assume, therefore, that they don't have the capacity to become more conscious of their dreams. What I've found in my own life and also working with students is if you write down your dreams every morning and you make that a conscious practice, and I, I made that a conscious practice at the age of, starting from the age of 15, when you begin that process and you write it down every morning and the more, as, in as much detail as possible, right when you wake up, I mean, immediately, without, before looking at your phone, anything like that, uh, it's amazing how much a phone can disrupt uh, deeper levels of consciousness. Um, but the more you do that, the more aware you become of your dreams. So I think that dreaming, you have to, it's like building a relationship. Uh, the more you're able to do that, the more vivid your dreams become. Uh, the more you remember your dreams, the more detail you get out of your dreams, the more specific messages you get out of dreams. It has to be cultivated. And that's something that I think people don't realize. They have an idea that dreams just are uh, given to them. Um, uh, but it's not true. It has to be exercised just like going to the gym. And then, of course, uh, as, as you do that, then that opens the gateway to lucid dreaming and other fun party tricks like that. Although it's not quite, I, I don't think that lucid dreaming is as cut and dry as people make it sound in books. I think that my own experience is that it's a continuum of just more and more awareness and consciousness and, and ability to recall your dreams. You know, and some, some are more intense than others. I, um... Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm definitely familiar with the Buddhist outline of dreaming, although I hadn't read that book, but the Tibetan aspect of it and love it. Love the three layers, find the three significant. Of course, we could talk about the magic of this all day. When when you're when we're looking at you in modern day, Jason, and your dream landscape, what does that generally look like then? And and I guess what I'm looking for is and this is a general generality. So color, sound, tactile senses, extra senses that you don't um, necessarily have in waking life, the whole thing. And this is, you know, this can encompass anything that you view under the title dreams and dreaming. Um, let me think about that for a second. Uh, my dreams are a workspace for me. They're incredibly precise in nature and, and tend to be uh, completely directed by a will to resolving certain things, uh, particularly when I'm putting more more effort into 
cultivating them because it is a skill that has to be uh, developed and maintained just like going to the gym. Yeah, I totally uh, agree on that. So. Yeah, so, so do you, do you kind of view? I'm being drink? I'm being a little bit taciturn about this, but that's I noticed. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Intentional, I assure you, because my uh, your dreams are private. <laughs> I would I wouldn't just give that give all that out on a podcast. Although I so, I, I it's a fascinating exercise, and I appreciate the uh, it it does make for fascinating radio. I'm sure. Yes, does, and wait, 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 I got a question. Do you okay. would you agree then that you you use your dream space as a um, scratch pad? or uh, workspace, work desk, virtual reality, whatever, to work on what you're manifesting in the physical, something like that? Um, I use it for all kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, would that be one aspect, though? That would be telling. Okay. No, I, I know other people that do do that, and I know that I, I have a feeling that that's uh, natural human nature hmm. to, to do that. I think that the dream plane can be used for almost anything, because any human activity, because it's also the, the world in which we're free from the constraints of the physical body. What is the line? So we will avoid um, talking about your personal dreams, and, and that's totally fine. Um, uh, but talking about dreams in general is, should be fine. And so what's the line between waking life and say high lucidity. I come from a standpoint, just to give this a little, some, an anchor, um, that I'm, I'm trying to get away, like Gordon White also says this, away from some of the old school language wrapped around it because it seems in, mo in the modern vocabulary, a little bit outdated and confusing. I think that out of body, I think it's all states of lucidity. And so even a high out of body experience where you, you're having a non-local kind of thing is still a state of lucidity. So where's the line, um, where's the line for you in this waking life and say an extremely high lucid dream where you're completely awake and aware within that space, which one has, more of a reality if if there is a way to um, present that. I'm a little bit confused about your question. Do you mean in waking life? You, you're saying waking. So do you mean in while you're awake or while you're asleep? Well, for me, the line is blurry. So while you're asleep and you're having a high state of lucidity, that is where everything is is pretty much as tangible and real as this, although... flavor of the dream you know things are more fantastic for me at least i can fly and i can i can do things that for some reason i tell myself here in waking life that i'm unable to do like flying um so how the what's the more real experience for you waking life or say a high lucidity dream where you're completely awake within it Okay, so when you say waking life you mean just standard day-to-day -day consciousness us talking right now yeah Okay, and when you say lucid dream, you mean being awake in a dream? Yes. And the question is, which one feels more real? Yeah, I mean, how do you... So I guess that's the simplest way to ask it, but what's, how do you parse that out? Because, again, to anchor it within my experience, when I'm having an extremely lucid, awake within the dream 
dreamer loves the dream experience, it is as tangible as this. If I cut myself, I have a sensation, right? And um, I can have interactions with other things. And um, there are consequences, even though I have a set of a new set of abilities, I can pop out or in, but there is still like, there's still a rippling effect within that dreamscape. Um, well, there's one interesting distinction there, which is, I mean, by definition, if you're in a lucid dream, you're aware that you're dreaming. Whereas, I mean, you have to be in order to become lucid. Whereas in waking life, we're almost never conscious. We're, we're never in waking life. We're, we're almost never aware that we're actually present and having a waking experience. I mean, I mean, this is really the, the crux of the, of the matter, right? I mean, this is like Gurdjieff talked about. This is why Gurdjieff said humanity is asleep or humanity is like walking robots because it, except in moments of, you know, heightened consciousness, whether you, and however you get there, whether it's through ritual or, um, you know, extreme exercise works for some people or in moments of trauma, moments of certainly like car accidents and things like that, definitely pierce the veil of the waking state. But uh, we, we underestimate how awake we really, or excuse me, we overestimate how awake we really are for most of the waking day. This is the whole reason why, you know, exercises itself remembering are so important. So the other difference is, so, so with the lucid dreaming, there's a certain meta level of awareness, uh, like a, you're, you're aware that it's a lucid dream and theref therefore by definition aware that it's not quote unquote real. Also, um, the, unless we want to be philosophical about that point, but also in the lucid dreaming state, there's usually a much less of a sense of a physicality or um, you know, um, focus is not quite so, you know, focus can be omnidirectional. Uh, you can have a much different uh, sense of, of spatiality. Um, things behave uh, like a cartoon, right, instead of physical reality. So, so the quality of the dream state is much different. Um, and of course, much more nonlinear. Although I would again say that we very much overestimate the linearity of our waking experience. Um, so, you know, there's some interesting threads to pull on there. And I've often thought that the loose, you know, one of the most fascinating things about lucid dreaming and the quest to wake up in your dreams, which is really kind of a novelty in a way, is that it's a fascinating metaphor for how we approach our waking life. Um, you know, can we wake up within our waking life, right? If we can wake up in the dream state, can we wake up while we're awake? That for me is the real question. I think that's, that's one of the goals. I agree when, so I'm on the same page with you. Um, and, but I also realize, so when, when I'm asking you questions, I guess I'm, I'm coming at it, not from the common person who is, uh, views dreams as just the auxiliary function or just the shuffling of the defragging of the day and nothing more and considers this waking life the full experience. And even though that we are technically in cycles of sleep and lucidity, you know, all day long. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you there. I, I wonder... Have you, are you willing to speak about having any kind of 
experiences do you so it doesn't have to be your experiences what do you think about having experiences with other entities in the dreamscape that are not you not part of your own uh unconscious or your own pinnings your own stuff oh yeah no i I think it's quite possible uh and 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 you know in a way this is well, it's the same question as psychedelics, right? In a way, right? So people take psychedelics and experience what appear to be non-local consciousnesses, right? And whether those are human, non-local, human-seeming consciousnesses uh, or non-local, non-human consciousnesses, you know, it's like it's, it's, uh, uh, people in the dream state interact with things that appear to be beings, right? In a way, we do in the waking world too. You know, all, all you have to do to experience that is look at a wall socket, and you will become face to face with. <laughs> a, 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 you know what I mean? It's like it's like a good human example. Beings, yeah, I mean, human beings are doing this con- constantly. It, it, you know, it's interesting to me how you know people push so hard and struggle so hard to access what they believe are the occult and magical dimensions of reality, right? And they assume that it's something that you have to work really hard to get to. Like you have to do enough yoga, enough meditation, enough ritual, memorize enough enough stuff out out of books. But it's not like that at all. All that that stuff does is help you structure what's already there. I mean, magic, in my way of thinking, is a language for seeing what's right in front of our face. And I love the, uh, I'm sure you guys remember the magic eye paintings from the 90s. Oh right. yeah. I, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Kind of like your eyes you get it. <laughs> yeah. Some ascended master must have come up with that because in a way it's like it's it's the perfect uh uh you know it's the perfect metaphor demonstration. For... It's the perfect metaphor, right? Because that's what magic is. Magic is a language for seeing what's right in front of your face in a new and enchanted way. And it's the same thing with the dream state. So, uh yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, I I've, I've uh, you know that's in a way, particularly if you're a magical practitioner, those that you have those experiences on a regular basis, and this is why um, doing the classical training of ceremonial magic and things like this it becomes so important because it allows you to to structure those experiences to be able to do things like banishing and invoking rituals in the dream state um, or to identify the entities that you come across or to test them you know to make sure that they are what they claim to be. Um, magic is a almost a programming language for doing that and uh, now the the broader question is are they real right and there's no answer to that question <laughs> there's also no answer to the question is anything real you know and that sounds like again this sounds like a kind of glib alan watts answer that you know somebody would you know some some hippie demagogue would be telling you while uh you know leading a drum circle or something like that is anything actually real man but it turns out to be actually true. I mean, in the sense that we we don't know. I mean, you know, and the, the, the great philosophers of Western, uh, you know, great Western philosophers have been grinding on that topic for centuries. Whereas, you know, the Eastern philosophers kind of, you know, just had a, were just like, no, of course, nothing's real. Get over it. You know, long ago, um, quantum mechanics so, is kind of backing that up too, with uh, you know the whole notion of quantum foam and the string theory and all that. So when you get down to the basic building blocks of matter, there's nothing there but, but vibration, frequency, and light. Sure. I, although every time I I, I, I I tend not to use quantum metaphors because every time I say the word quantum, I, I have I feel an apparition of 
Stephen Novella on one shoulder and Christopher Hitchens on the other, screaming in my ear to not sound. <laughs> but um, it's a uh, thing, you know. Yeah, but um, but the but the, you know the fascinating thing to think about also is like we we don't have any we we have no ability to understand anything outside of our sensory array. You know what we think, and this also becomes fascinating for the from the lens of the dream state. You know, it's like we don't have the we we literally. Everything we think of as consciousness is a trick that's played by our brain to assemble all that it, you know, just data that it's scraping out of the environment with very, very rudimentary jellies, you know, our eyes, our, our ears, you know, the eardrums, things like this. You know, it's like we have very, very crude instruments to try and make sense of the world around us. And, you know, and this becomes important also when we consider the question of the ego, you know, the idea of that you have a personal self. You know, the personal self is a trick of the brain. I mean, it's it's a very clever trick, and it's not a nasty trick, but it's 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 a it's a, you know it's assembled out of, by the brain out of sensory input. It's best possible guess about. It's not even its best possible guess about what it's, what's going on. It's its best possible guess about how to survive given the input inputted data, right? So it's almost like um, a virtual avatar constructed from all that stuff. Your brain keeps us right virtual construction going that's your ego yeah it's just a story right but mm -hmm. we we think that it's real and we're hypnotized by it our whole life and stare at it in the mirror so so, so yeah other entities and things like that i mean yeah of course if you it's like i always come back to crowley said something you know crowley i think in many ways despite his many many personal failings is still at least one of the top most intelligent people to ever assess the field of magic. You know, it's like, I, you know, he really, in many ways, Crowley's writings still are the intellectual high watermark in the magical field. And in Liber O, he wrote a book called Liber O. I mean, it's, it's a, not a book. It's just a, like a pamphlet, really, um, in the early part of the 20th century, where he outlined some of these practices. And he says in that, you know, the classic thing he says in that is, by doing certain experiments, you will have certain results. You know, results will follow, um, but you must be on guard at all times to never attribute objective truth to any of them. Because, so case in point, if you do magical rituals, you will soon be confronted by beings too terrible or, you know, beautiful or angelic to speak of. Uh, and, and this includes in the dream state. Uh, absolutely. That's one of the first things that happens when people start doing magic. Their dreams become hyper vivid um, and they start encountering these things in their dreams. And, uh, the first mistake is to think that they're real. Um, as soon as you think that they're, you're, they're, they're real, you've made the mistake of religion, which is to attribute objective validity to you know, heightened experiences. And then, of course, the next thing that happens is you start trying to use them to impose a dogma on other people. But I think that Crowley very clearly makes the point that for every experience you have, and you know, there's an equal and opposite experience somewhere out there in the world. And your viewpoints on your experiences may change as time goes on because everything, you know, to, to bring this back, everything's in a state of flux, including the meaning that we attribute to our own experiences. So, you know, if I was to go back and look at, I'm sure the records, my magical records that I was keeping when I was 18, I'm sure that there were things in there that would just mortify me and embarrass me to no end of some of the interpretations I was putting on things. But of course, I'm sure there'd be uh, amazing things also. But you know, our view of our views on everything change as we get older. So. And thankfully uh, so. <laughs> right. Right. 
What have you, do you personally experience, um, have you, or go into the state of dreaming um, with an intent to learn something? And has that happened? I mean, some people might package that in a download. There's a lot of different language you could use. But have, have you had this experience of learning via the dream state, dreamscape, and then bringing that into this particular state of consciousness, which just for lack of better words, we call waking life? Yeah, definitely. I think that's actually one of the best ways to start working with dreams because, um, well, the best way to start is to start writing them down. Once you start writing them down and you get a, you, you notice how that much that opens up the dream plane um, and you get a good grasp on, on building that skill, the next step is to basically set an intent before you go to sleep. You know, and it's like, um, you know, you can write down an intent for what you want to experience in the dream, or if you want to learn something specifically. Um, some people will even, you know, go so far as to write it on some paper and put it under their pillow, uh, or, uh, you know, as meditation progresses, that, that becomes that type of, you know, as, as meditation as meditation progresses, all ritual and tools become less necessary or not necessary at all. But um, that's a good way to start, and. Um, you know, it can be, that can be tricky to start too. I mean, you might have to do it, you know, every, every night for a week until you get a result at first uh, or longer maybe, but yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you can use sigils for that. That's another interesting, you know, you can, you can experiment with that, but yeah, I mean, it's like you can give your unconscious commands. The same thing as you can give your, you can give your unconscious commands in waking life too, obviously. Right. I mean, that's what magic, that's what results magic is. That's what sigil magic is. You know, your unconscious just, uh, you know, your unconscious is magnitudes of times more powerful in directing your experience than your conscious mind is. Your conscious mind is, is incredibly weak. You know, the conscious mind is, is as you said earlier, a, 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 you know, a workspace. It's like a scratch pad. Uh, it's, it can hold short-term memory, but we, we all know that our conscious mind flits from one thing to the next. It's incredibly... Um, um, uh, in you know uh, what's the word for it? It's it's incredibly um, uh, hard to pin down or hard to focus, and this is the whole point of meditation. But the unconscious is a different story, and and magic in a way is a, a technique for you know a, a framework for embedding commands within the unconscious, so that the unconscious can work on them uh, with its full processing power while you're barely aware of it. And when you do that, that's when things like synchronicities begin to pile up or things that appear like magic uh, begin to happen in, in your waking life. Magic in a way, uh, just to be put it, you know, just to lay it all out there, magic in a way is a, a, a system for shaping conscious awareness, the conscious one's conscious experience of reality, almost in exactly the same way as all the techniques for lucid dreaming shape the dream state. I mean, you're basically doing the same type of thing which, of course, demonstrates the dreamlike and tangible nature of waking life. You know, when you get synchronicities that pile up, that are inexplicable, it's like there's no possible way that could have happened, and it just happened five times in a row. <laughs> it begins to question, well, what is this? You know, it's like, why is, why is waking life behaving with dreamlike logic? You know, and I'm not saying I have an answer for that. I mean, we could, of course, make the leap to, to say that we're, we're in 
you know, conscious life also is a dream state or a, a, a virtual state, virtual reality state, perhaps. Uh, but, you know, but, but, you know, there we have to cross the chasm into philosophy and into religion and, you know, that all that, you know, magic opens the question, but I'm not so interested in the answers as dwelling on the question, right? Because as soon as you try to answer that, well, now you're, a, now you're a, a willing slave of a school of philosophy or a willing slave of a religious way of thinking, which I'm not so interested in. For me, I'm, I'm a magician. I'm interested in the actual experience. So, you know, when you're training the mind, the dream state, you're, as we're talking about, you know, you're, you're giving commands to the unconscious mind to direct dreams, to retrieve certain information, to have, you know, and also when you're, when you're practicing lucid dreaming, for instance, you're looking for symbols and cues to remind you that you're in a dream if you're doing the uh, mnemonic-induced lucid dreaming technique, uh, which is, of course, not the best technique for lucid dreaming. Uh, uh, wild is wake-induced lucid dreaming. But... Um, magic is the same right it's like when when you do magic you're interacting with waking life with dream logic you're interacting with waking life as if it were a dream a waking dream um, and hopefully becoming aware that it is a dream and becoming somewhat philosophical and standing back from that instead of overly ascribing reality to these experiences because that that way madness leads you know that way madness lies as they say uh, it's it's more about um, you know, I think the experimental attitude is, is the best to take instead of the attempting to, and this is, I think what Crowley's getting at, you know, it's like, just keep experimenting, keep getting results, but don't dwell on why they're happening. Don't dwell on the why, dwell on the how, uh, because otherwise you just start constructing a dogma and then you become, uh, you know, when we construct dogmas, we become slaves, uh, of them. And if we're really unlucky, then other other people become slaves of them also. Absolutely. I, um, I, I really like what you put down about the, the pondering or the, the process rather than the answers. And that's definitely one of our laurels, laurels here in, in these interactions about states of consciousness that hinge around dreaming. When we talk meditation, and, in, and that is a broad subject, and everyone, I think we naturally do it, it naturally happens, and then there's a lot of dogma around that as to procedures and techniques. Um, what, what is the barrier? Do you see, is there a membrane between deep meditation, um, active imagination, uh, and remote viewing? I know I'm throwing a lot at you. It, as, no, so those three kinds of, again, in that terminology, waking life that you're consciously enacting, um, is there something similar within those states that corresponds to the state of dreaming? Okay, this is a, a, a this is great. This is a really um, this is a core question. Okay, so let me think about this for a second. Deep meditation. Remote, okay, deep meditation and remote viewing can be almost identical, right? Yes, or let me yes. put it this way. When, when you get into deep meditation states, and when I say deep, I don't mean, I don't mean deepest, deepest, right? Like deep, when you get into deep meditation states, you do pass through the astral, right? So, yes. um, uh, the, so it's, very, it's very common to particularly when meditating, uh, you know, and not just meditating, and, and 
This is more common when meditating in, for instance, like a retreat setting or a focused group than it is uh, in just day-to-day meditation practice, just because it's a more intense experience or you may be devoting more time or spending more time on meditating. Um, It it is very um, common, I'll put it, to trigger remote viewing experiences while in deep meditation. Um, And I will, and and those, you know, just to put some more specific language on that, that can be very similar to, you know, having the sense of not being in the body, you know, viewing something perhaps far away. It can seem very much like flying. Uh, It probably was described as, you know, when the old yogic manuals and grimoires are talking about the state of flying, this is one of the things they may be talking about. those are very similar um, or, or identical, really. It may be the same thing. Um, and that also can be quite similar to the out-of-body experience experienced during sleep paralysis or perhaps lucid dreaming. Um, those things are all of the same, seem to be of the same band of consciousness. Uh, but there was one that there was one other that you mentioned, just waking life. Yeah, well, it, from waking life, so from what we ascribe as it's a to- it's a totally different experience than waking life. It's, yeah. it's not at all. It, it seems to be much higher definition. It seems to be you know it's not embodied. It's it's a it's a radically different, uh, and it's so radically different. By the way, that when you experience it, um, it boggles the mind to think that it could be possible right because you can't exp- you, by the way that's not also not something that you can experience through psychedelic drugs right i would know by will you el- <laughs> yeah so would i i i love this will you elaborate on that aspect with the the psychotropics it's just not the same it's a different experience right um okay let me take this back i hear although i wouldn't know personally oh. <laughs> Uh, ketamine. Okay, ketamine is the exception, right? Ketamine very, can very easily induce the out-of-body or remote viewing experience. So I take that back. So I hear, as I've read on the internet. So when let's can we? Let, is it all right if we um, stop and ponder about psychotropics for a minute in relation to states of consciousness as they tie into, as it ties into, um the state of dreaming and the state of waking, which are both at our hands every day as we experience it. What, so when you say, say LSD. Yes, as long as we can get it, as I can get some water. Go ahead, go get some water. Okay, all right, I'll be back. (laughs) Now we need some music, Jer. (laughs) I actually have intermission music, but. (laughs) It's <laughs> hilarious. Um, I... Yeah, this is a great conversation right now. Here we go. Intermission. No, don't play the intro again. He's going to be back by the time you get that going. I... Oh, I see you have it going. I took it off. Because I'll forget and then, you know, no one will hear us for an hour. Right, wouldn't that be hilarious? So far, is the stream all right with all the people in chat? Everything clear? Everything's cool. Everyone out there having a good time? It's funny we had such trouble starting. We have 36 people watching. Hello, everyone who's watching and not in chat. Whoa, I think that's a record for us live. No. 
No, it has to be close to a record. We usually only have like 20. Hello, everyone in the chat, not in the chat looking because I close my eyes and focus on what's being said. So I don't sound like, so I sound like I'm following and, and try to muster up intelligence. So she doesn't sound like me is what she means. <laughs> well, Jerry, you're doing, you're multitasking. I'm not good at multitasking. So. Tequila makes you horny. That's nice to know, Joseph. <laughs> So, Jerry, who do we have on next week? Next week we have, we have Laird Scranton. Oh, awesome. Excellent. And yep, then in yep. October, we have a witchy month for everyone. Yeah, we haven't told anyone yet. I yeah, we, well, the guests are still, I think, secret, but it's a witchy month. All right. Welcome back. <laughs> we were going to queue up our intermission um, stuff, but... We didn't. <clears throat> okay, so let's move on to. Okay, so th this is for some people. This is a a stretch, Jason. But because you are who you are, I'm going to present it to you. Um, so within the paradigm of the dreamscape, where is the line between? And so I understand if we just move to lucidity with this, but where's the line between the, the pillars, free will and destiny, like um, the, the immovable stuff and the stuff that you have control over? How do you navigate? So is that too vague? Yes, to be honest, but, but let's start with it. I, I think that, okay, so let me, let me just, give you back my interpretation of that. You can tell me if it's correct. Um, so do you mean that in the dream, when you're lucid in the dream state, mm -hmm. what determines what you can change and what you can't, and can we draw broader philosophical points yes, out of it? you're exactly okay. on it. Okay, cool. So let me answer the second part first. Uh, Crowley, uh, not to continually go back to Crowley, but he did have some very useful ideas. Uh, one of the most useful is don't confuse the planes, right? So, so Crowley has this idea that uh, when you are pursuing the magical experience, uh, don't confuse the planes, meaning don't confuse the logic of the astral plane or the dream state with the waking reality. Um, you know, if you're trying to, uh, let's say, you know, split the atom, you know, don't be, you know, if you're trying to split the atom in a lab, don't use the same logic as, as you don't use magical logic, don't use, uh, you know, they're different, different skill sets, or, you know, we've been talking about technology, it's like, you know, different parts of a computer require different programming languages, right? So the dream state requires, the dream state functions with magical type logic, uh, the waking world sometimes can in the magical experience, and sometimes doesn't, sometimes the waking world requires uh, supreme logic and rationality. I mean, you can't, uh, you know, file, you can't file your taxes with the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, for instance, just to be crass about it. Um, so the broader point is in terms of, can we draw greater, can we draw some type of broader philosophical point outside of, from the way the dream plane behaves? I'm not sure. 
I think that we can discover very interesting things about human consciousness, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be quick to ascribe, you know, I wouldn't be quick to, over, to map the logic of the dream plane to other parts of the human experience. I would be more comfortable, I'll just put it this way, I would be more comfortable um, keeping it as its own thing, right? Um, there, there's certainly interesting things to think about, but it's, it's just a different part of the, the broader continuum of human experience. Um, now, in terms of what can be changed and what can't, let me think about this for a second. Usually, you get to direct the broad themes of the dream. Like you get to, but it's almost done before the dream starts, right? So there's a certain level in which you're selecting it, but you, it's the, the lucidity sometimes comes in more in the pre-selection of the experience. Um, and sometimes that's done consciously and sometimes it's done unconsciously. And the one point that I will put on it is the better you become at dream recall and the better you, you become at meditation, the more directed and precise dreams become. And that even if it's not a conscious decision. Um, so the control of the dream tends to happen before the dream starts. Um, in the dream state, you become more, okay, okay, okay. I think I see more clearly what you're asking now. So as one becomes better at, as one becomes more lucid, and again, I wanna go back to my statement that lucidity is a spectrum, a spectrum, right? Because people kind of, it's easy, to, it's easy with lucid dreaming to get a complex of, oh, I can't lucid dream. Like there's, where are the fireworks? Something's supposed to happen, nothing's happening. But in my experience, it's not quite like that. It's more that it, it's a slow continuum of bringing the whole thing from writing down your dreams to directing dreams to becoming more awake and more lucid is really one process. It's a spectrum of becoming, bringing more and more consciousness and bringing more and more conscious awareness to the dream state in the same way that spiritual practice is a continuum of bringing more and more conscious awareness to your waking experience. Why am I behaving this way? Why am I leading the life that I am? Why am I reacting to people the way that I am? Why am I on autopilot? Why do I not smile at the grocer? Why do I, you know, like what's going on there? What games am I playing in my life? Why am I enacting patterns in relationship that are old patterns from childhood, right? Like that's the work, right? It's, it's the work of psychotherapy. It's the work of spirituality. It's bringing more and more conscious to human awareness because the more conscious we can become as human beings, the better we can interact with the world. We, we begin to interact with the world in a way that is not um, uh, antagonistic, hopefully. Um, and that's not the right word. Uh, we, we interact with the world in a more intelligent way and in a more, hopefully a more compassionate way. It's the same with a dream state, right? So uh, the whole process of, of cultivating lucidity, really it's the process of cultivating consciousness within the dream state. And what we can draw from that is that it's very, we can draw the connections to the spiritual path in, the, in, in waking life, you know, because it's basically the same process. Um, now, I think I see the crux of your question, which is, 
as you become more conscious, as you become more lucid within the dream state, one appears to appears to gain more free will, right? Uh, will it, like you know about how the dream goes, about how to interact with the dream, um, more, the first more control, foremost, more control, more control. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the first, uh, one of the best skills is just being able to wake up out of, you know, just being able to, if you're having a nightmare, oh, oh, I'm having a nightmare, I can wake up, great, you know, how great of a feeling is that, right? Um, but you gain more, I think free will is a good way to put it, you gain more conscious will and conscious, uh, you, you gain more conscious free will within the dream. So can you change everything? No, not really. It's more like you can kind of hedge and steer the dream. Um, in my experience, maybe people who are crazy, crazy lucid um, uh, experience it more. Experience it differently. Um, but so then the question is: Okay, can we can we draw some? Can we from that? Can we tangentially draw something? Uh, some type of insight about waking reality. For instance, the, an insight that you could have, and that I'm not saying is the correct insight, but an insight that you very clearly could have is consciousness creates free will, right? Like the more consciousness that we're able to cultivate in the dream state and then presumably within waking life, the more consciousness we're, the more consciousness we're able to bring to our experience the more free will we at least appear to experience. Is that true? I don't know, but it's true enough that it's like, it's, it's like operationally viable, right? It's like that you can take that philosophy and bring it to your life and it'll work. Um, it's, 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 it's operationally viable enough to the point where you can, I mean, you could take that as a working hypothesis, right? Sure. I mean, it's almost, it becomes a belief system at that point, And then you've incorporated it into your life. So your reality bubble has changed already. So everything's going to change as a result of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally get it. With, okay. So with all of this as a foundation, where do you see, what is the nature of, as we, as we, um, might call it uh and again for easy easy unpacking common terms that transcend a lot of different lines what's the nature of the soul and spirit and are they even separate um i i mean i, I can't answer that <laughs> well, I, I think that, uh, let me let me bounce that back which okay. is that so one, a truism, right? Something that we've heard a lot is that the more words you have to describe something, the more precisely you can talk about it, right? So, and, and the one thing, the example that people give is the Inuit have over something like 80 words for snow, right? And we have one word for snow or maybe a couple, you know, slush, ice, something like that. Um, and so because because there's a much more precise language for snow, um, there's a much better way to discourse about snow and talk about snow, and therefore an ability to um, perceive things about snow that people who don't have 80 categories for snow just are not perceiving, right? Or it's not that they're not perceiving them, they're just lumping them all into one category. So the reason I 
bring that up. <clears throat> in English, we only have a few words, soul, spirit, they're huge. I mean, spirit comes from German, um, Geist, right? It's like they're kind of inherited words from other languages. Um, and that's really clumsy, like, and it, this is the flaw of the English language, you know, and then from that we can, you know, we could talk about world history and the role of English in the world and the British Empire and all kinds of other stuff out of that. But um, one of the reasons why Kabbalah is so important, I, well, okay, let me, let me back up. There's a couple really, really good technical languages for talking about spiritual phenomena, right? One is Kabbalah. Um, so when you, when you use Kabbalah, you don't get spirit and soul. You get the five parts of the soul. You've got like the Ruach, the Nefesh, all, you know, all these different parts. Um, the, and you have a, a very finely graded language for talking about potentially hundreds or thousands even of aspects of human consciousness, which you can see just by picking up Library 777. Uh, or, you know, or the Golden Dawn or something like that, or just, a, you know, like a Gershom, Gershom uh, Skolem book or something like that. Um, uh, the other one is, well, there's three. Okay, so, so the other really good one is uh, Vedanta. So when we talk about like the Atman, the Purusha, you know, in Sanskrit, now we're, now we're talking about Sanskrit, not Hebrew. There's another very, very finely graded language for the soul and parts of the soul and parts of consciousness. Uh, Buddhism also has a very good language, and there's a couple different versions of that. Obviously, <clears throat> Pali, right, the original Pali Buddhist canon, there's a ton of really, really useful stuff there. Um, and also the Tibetan and, and um, Tibetan and some of the other ones. And I think that if I, I think that the, some of the more, I mean, Buddhist logic on some of this stuff gets incredibly incredibly precise, like almost more logical than, than Western logic, right? Perhaps more logical. Um, and so all of these languages were developed by psychonauts and people who were looking for their true selves. And I think that if I was just to answer your question on the face of it, I think that the best answer probably is the Buddhist answer, which is there is no soul. It doesn't exist in the sense that uh, you know, the Hinduism posits that there's an Atman, right? There's a core soul, there's a core spark of existence, something that animates consciousness. The, the insight of the Buddha, which really was a quantum leap in consciousness, was that it doesn't exist. It's like everything, the, the Buddhist way of seeing the world is that there is no, you know, they were anti-essentialists, something that we could do with, we could do with more of in our current political climate. Mm -hmm. um, they, they basically, the, the core insight of the Buddha was that everything is empty of inherent existence. There is no essence to anything. That what we perceive as selves and what we see, what we perceive as uh, beings is um, a network, right? It's like a network of consciousness. It's like I, I, the, the three of us and all the people listening to this are only us in this instance, right? And I'm not going to be exactly the same in any, any other interview or, you know, when I'm doing errands after this interview and things like that, it's going to be a different version of me. So there really is no core me, right? This was the kind of the, the, the core insight of the Buddha is that the quest to discover oneself is folly, right? Because there's no self there. There's only a network effect of, of other consciousnesses. 
you know, just to, to overly simplify the Dharma into a, a few sentences. No, I totally get That's, that. I just, it's an interesting thought. And I've, I've read about the Dharma and yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's almost like you have this presentation layer. <laughs> I hate to use computer yeah. terms. You have this presentation for different groups. So, you know, like when you're at work, if you're a different person at work than you are at home, when you are with your guy, your guy friends or your lady friends or when you're bowling, et cetera, you know? Yeah. But, but the insight, the insight is like, but that's okay because there's actually not anything underneath that. Right. Yeah, and, yeah, and right. that's okay because from that insight, that's from that insight, the compassion arises, right? Mm -hmm. Because what that ultimately means is, we're all a network of consciousness. You know, there is no self that's separate from the community. It's just an illusion. Um, yeah. And, and I think that, well, let me just more practically, like, let me ask you, like, do you know anybody who has discovered this mythical holy grail of their one true self and then become, I don't know, <laughs> Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen or something like that? I know someone who claims to be Dr. Manhattan and... <laughs> Okay. Well, I know no, lots but, of people with lots of hubris. No, I don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But then there are certain people, right? So there, there are certain people who seem to be self-actualized beings, right? Who seem to be, you know, have, well, let's just put it this way, have found their true calling in life and in a way become more than human, right? Um, Elon Musk. Gandhi. Okay. Elon, well, sure, Elon Musk, right? You know, but well, like all the great figures, Siddhartha. I mean, we can go down the line with all those that seem to have unlocked sure. the code. Totally. But then the question becomes: Is the fact that they appear to be what they are, is it because they've discovered a true self, or because they've discovered a role within society? Right. What is the Buddha? The Buddha is a job. What is Gandhi? Yes. Gandhi's job. It's a job that's required by humanity at large. Gandhi yes. doesn't get to exist without, you know, frankly, Gandhi doesn't exist without the whole of India and the, the British Empire, right? Like that being, that node of consciousness does not come into play, come into existence without billions of other consciousnesses. It's necessitated by all those consciousnesses. So in other words, you're basically saying the consciousness is this blanket and people are just poking up through it <laughs> to push up a little bit over the bottom and then whatever's around it combines to make that persona well i think we, we are the blanket right right we're not right, separate right, right. We're, not, we're not separate and yeah that's what i was getting at but, but then which comes back to the first thing i said in the interview which is that you know human beings are pattern weaving creatures you know this whole mm -hmm. thing the tapestry all the grand tapestry no. we are it and that's a great take and then you've got another blanket which is the system trying to cover us up right in a way no i think empire the system's us too it's all us the system's us. It's a projection of I agree. It's, it's us, too. Yeah. It's still out there. And until, you know, physically and stuff, it's out there. It's not us. It's a pattern that we created. And we, you know, how many slaves, uh, how many slaves produce the computers we're talking on? I have right. no idea. Right? At least 14. Uh, <laughs> I thought it'd be like 39 or 93. Maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure it's quite that much, but it's, it's enough. For 18. <laughs> we, are, so, we are the yep. with With all this, with all this, where do you see the nature of, and so reoccurrence, reoccurrent dreams, which we tied into earlier talking about synchronicity. And certainly reoccurrence is a form of synchronicity, if not synchronicity. Um, 
but tied into this this other level of finding a deeper layer of consciousness or a deeper awakening within the experience of reoccurrence of of synchronicity so when you say recurrence do you mean like nietzsche's eternal uh, eternal return yes and then and you're relating that to synchronicity and so, okay, so, so let me put this, uh, let's do this again. Let me see if I understand. I'm just going to put this in what I, my language, and then you can tell me if it's right. Um, so when we experience patterns in reality, of which synchronicity and the eternal return are examples of, when we see that there's, when we, when we see that there appears to be patterns in existence and uh, patterns in the nature of reality, it seems to hint at some deeper level of reality. And what is that? Is that kind of what you're asking? Yes, with the caveat of are we able to use that as, say, a mechanism to to awaken deeper, to to okay. somehow unlock the code a little more? Got it. Okay, perfect. Okay, so. Uh, what we're talking about is is Plato, right? It's like we're talking about uh, the Platonic way way of viewing the world, or neo Neoplatonic. The idea, and you know, Plato basically posited, and it's mirrored in Kabbalah, or picked up later by the Kabbalah that was merged with Platonic thought in the the Renaissance. Yeah, um, that there are eternal forms, right? So Plato, for instance. There are, you know, and the classic example is the platonic solids, right? Uh, the, the cube, the sphere, all the dodecahedron, all, you know, everything that looks like D&D &D dice. Um, <laughs> exactly. Right. It all, always comes back to the Coincidence? I think not. Trust me. Yeah, of course not. Uh, <laughs> so the, um, okay, so, so the, the example, you know, the, the classic example is there are many chairs, um, there's so many, there's billions of chairs in the world potentially, but there's one idea chair, right? There's an eternal chair, the idea of chair from which all other chairs proceed. Um, and th that in Plato's way of thinking is the eternal chair, right? It's, it's unbreakable. It's unchangeable. It's written on the walls of eternity. Uh, you know, Kabbalah picks up this idea greatly and extrapolates it. Um, um, and so that there are unchanging, you know, the writing on the walls of eternity is unchanging, right? There are certain forms or patterns that are eternal. And it's not just chairs, it's for human beings, right? There's the eternal, you know, I as a man am somewhat unique and also somewhat basically exactly the same as, as you know, well, really every other human being that's ever lived, you know, but it's like there, there are certain patterns which recur. Um, now, there's also danger in this way of thinking. And you can tell, even when I started talking about, when I, I started verging on it just by saying, you know, I as a man and perhaps like all other men that are, you know, have ever lived, right? It's like, so, so here we, the danger is essentialism. Um, and the idea that there, those things are somehow, are also that those things are somehow objectively real, right? So we can, make a, we can easily make a slip here, which is that, okay, there are billions of chairs but those are all passing. That's Maya. That's samsara, right? It's like that. None of that is actually real. What's actually real is the eternal chair. That's real. Now, 
that's a slip. And that's, um, we have to be very careful with that because that also is only a stage. It, and if we don't get past that, then we end up in essentialism. Um, I can think of more than a few people who are making that mistake right now, <laughs> Jordan Peterson. Um, and it basically becomes a far right project, right? The far right very much loves the idea of essentialism. Uh, Jung picked up on this at length with the idea of archetypes, right? And we can see <laughs> Jordan Peterson abusing the hell out of that concept, claiming that the archetypes are in some way literally real. Um, and then from there, of course, it's only a hop, skip, and jump away to, for instance, uh, ascribing a central character to groups of people, right? Gender essentialism, racial essentialism. This is really the pit of uh, the far right um, and, and fascism, ultimately. So the important next step from there is to understand that those forms also are transient. They also are empty of inherent reality, just like everything else, right? Those also are simply the performative constructions of reality, of, of humanity. Um, and ultimately, they proceed from emptiness. They proceed from the void. And just because they are, let me put it this way, the only difference between the archetypal level of reality and waking life like the transient flesh and blood level of reality and of course in the dream state we can experience things that appear to be from the archetypal level of reality the only difference is that it's on a longer time scale that's it right that's it the idea of a chair will live longer if you can almost consider it an, in an independent entity it might have a lifespan of ten thousand years twenty thousand years who knows right but it's still mortal in the sense that it's still a transient passing phenomenon and it too will pass into the void. Um, and that's important to realize. And it is deeply disturbing to people to realize because people want there to be, they really, really want there to be eternal forms. They really do. Um, whole religions are founded on that concept. Christianity is founded on the concept of eternal forms, right? Hinduism, founded on the concept of eternal forms. Like these are uh, religions that say there is something exists. You might not be able to see it. You might not be able to touch it, but it's really real. And if you essentially live your life within the bounds and constrictions within of these eternal forms, as laid down in the Bible or the Vedantic scriptures or whatever it is, again, ritual, right? All that is ritual patterns created by cultures on a long time scale, a couple thousand years. Um, they really, really want it to be real because people are fundamentally terrified of losing control. It's scary. They want things to be real. They want to be able to control their existence. Religion is just an extension of the same impulse. It's like we want there, we impose forms on reality to control it, but you can't. And this comes back to the, the fundamental tragedy or, or comedy, right? It's really a comedy of human existence which is that humans are the time-binding animal. Like, uh, as, you know, they, they attempt to impose, again, impose meaning on everything in order to bind time. But binding time is not possible, right? It's just not, it's not, it's, it's not possible to bind time. You can't. And from this, we get all the tragedies and great drama of human existence. You know, Ozymandias or Shakespeare or, you know, all great, king, you know, Alexander the Great trying to conquer the whole world and then he dies of malaria. You know, it's like, and um, this is 
this is the fundamental, you know, I'd say, let's say comedy, right? It's like the fundamental comedy of human, the, the fundamental futility of human existence, that human existence becomes slapstick in the end. It's like the three stooges, you know, because this is all we're trying to do. We're trying to bind time and make things really, really real. But you can't, you can't. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, <clears throat> Herman Hess really gets at this idea in his what I think is pretty autobiographical is book Steppenwolf, which I think is his masterpiece. Um, yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, there's so many good lines out of that too, that bands have formed from, but you know, there's only enough time and eternity for a joke and stuff like that. Um, we're so in, in, in running with this theme of, of, um, reoccurrence, how do you experience so this is also a personal thing like how do you experience this but also what do you see the function of deja vu okay um i don't know i think that I suspect it is a marker that something fundamentally fundamental about reality has changed, right? It, it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, I think that the matrix theory about it is pretty good. You know, it's like you have deja vu when they've changed something about the matrix. Right. And they ascribe that as something, you know, there's trouble, like they're, they're onto you in the matrix, right? That scene where Neo's, going up the stairs and he sees the cat and says deja vu i think that what it might be is a marker that we've selected a different track you know and and okay so i i will commit the cardinal sin of referencing quantum physics but the whole many worlds <laughs> interpretation of quantum physics i did which it first is, there's many okay it's a it's all right we're all jerry broke the ice <laughs> we, we can, can confess on sunday uh I think that, um, you know, the, the idea that there are, you know, it's only an interpretation of an experiment, right? It's not even really a theory. It's just an interpretation of an experiment. But the, the possible interpretation that, of, of the ramifications of the, 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 the wave particle experiment is that perhaps we are selecting, you know, there are many different possible outcomes. All that, that, well, what is it? It's like that, you know, so, There's infinite realities in which different outcomes of decisions exist, right? And it depends and, on the, it takes the observer to manifest it. Got it. Right, 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 right. So deja vu potentially, I mean, when it, what, let's just say it, like an interesting thing to think about is maybe it's when we choose to observe a different time track, right? It's like some part of us observes, decides to jump to a different, I mean, that's, that's magic right there. That's sorcery, right? It's like a decision is made. And again, it's like with the lucid dreaming thing. It's like the question about when do you get control? And I was saying, well, it's kind of pre-selected before you have the dream. Well, what part of you pre-selects it? Not a conscious part. I think it's the same way with deja vu. It's like some part of us selects a different reality. And what, that's what magic is for, right? The whole apparatus of ritual magic, once you strip down all the hot topic nonsense off it and the personalities and the big words and the egos, and all the nonsense crap that people have accumulated around magic um, to make themselves seem special. Um, that's what it is, right? It's like magic is a technology for changing. It's like, it's well, in a way, it's exactly what it says on the can, right? 
what is magic? Magic is a tool set for altering reality. What does that actually mean? I think functionally what it means is selecting different time tracks. I agree. In the tagline, changingness at will that in my lifetime, Scott, and overworked is exactly this. Um, for me, with magic and with just directing thought, you said something very important earlier that um, that I say a lot. Just being, I guess, raw and gritty is I've always I always I deal with this. This is a thing of losing control, fear of losing control, which is why I'm, I'm not really I'm not addicted to anything because I I don't want to lose control. And I have found in the psychedelic experiences I did as a young person that was what kept me from wanting to do more, right? There was this sense of I'm, I'm not in control and I don't like when that happens, which then led down, you know, down the bridge of where's consciousness, where's my consciousness, where does it live? And why am I, however you want to ascribe that, afraid of the loss of control, which brings us into kind of the last segment here of death. What do you think so with everything that we've we've put on the table tonight what do you think is that state of consciousness so and and it's open jason it's open like with the process of death obviously we we go through it on a physical level which then of course our beliefs and fears and all that come to play in how we process death if we have a slow one a fast one just happens um but what is the state of consciousness that is death in context to this tabled conversation we've had. Like, what's your opinion of it? Not, we're not asking for the authoritative answer, obviously. Well, that's, this show's not about authoritative stuff. We're talking just <laughs> one, you know, what are your... Well, what, say, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in, in, a, in, a, in, in a sense, all human activity is like an attempt to distract ourselves from that. Like, everything from... I don't know, playing freaking Ocarina of Time to having kids to, you know, starting a war, right? It's, it's all a distraction from the fundamental terror of having to stop. Um, and, you know, what you get that, I, what, I'll, say, I'll say this, right? You know, because I don't know. I just don't. You know, it's like, well, what, I can repeat stuff from books, but who, who the fuck knows, right? Well, your um, gut, your feelings, yeah, exactly. your meditative ponders, your magical workings, how it all plays into this. Sure. Okay. Well, let me answer that in two ways. Um, when you meditate at length, okay, so, uh, so the earlier point, fear of loss of control, right? The, the, the message of psychedelics is re releasing control, right? Like that's kind of the whole point. So... It's also the lesson of meditation and spirituality to some extent. And it's also the lesson of life. Um, you don't yes. have to be. Yeah. I mean, it's like in a way, spiritual exercises, psychedelics, it's like you're, you're really kind of rehearsing for life in a, in a strange way. But life, will life has an agenda, right? Whether that's consciously determined or not, who knows? But life has, a, again, it's like patterns, right? There's certain patterns to human life. Life has things that it needs to show you, and one of them is one's fundamental inability to control existence. Um, and that's been, you know, described as breaking the ego and all that. But 
um, you know, life will force you to let go. And it's the same when you do that, when you're okay with letting go, it becomes the same as when you let go in the psychedelic state, which is if you let go in a trip, it becomes really good. So I hear because I only drink instant coffee, okay? So don't get any, any ideas. <laughs> but so, so I've heard. <laughs> be um, funny, Jason. <laughs> I'm just, you know, like I, I, you know, I just collect D&D books and drink instant coffee. Okay. That, that so, sounds like uh, my life. We'll roll those dice. Actually, it sounds more like Graham Dunlap. But... Okay. Um, so the whole point is losing, is relinquishing control, right? It's like, that's the point. Um, why? Because it's preparation for death, right? Because the whole point of, at least, the whole point of, the point, spirituality is rehearsal for death. Life is rehearsal for death in a way. You know, it's like, like, what what can we do so that we die at least somewhat content? For most people, different people have different answers to that question. For most people, it's kids, right? For most people, it's, it's reproducing. For some people, it's some creative project. For some people, it's building a business. For some, it's some, everyone's got to contribute to the world somehow, right? Or, or somehow feel that their time here was well spent, right? And different people have different answers to that question. But ultimately, it has to be faced. and my i think that okay what i'll give you a practical answer of what i know is true right about which is just about life right it's not really about death um death causes people unbelievable anxiety right without them even knowing it it's like all kinds of stuff causes trauma and anxiety you know childhood trauma causes us anxiety and causes us to behave strangely um uh, adulthood trauma. I mean, I think we shouldn't even just talk about childhood trauma. You know, life is traumatic. Adults are traumatized. Traumatizing things happen to people in the professional environment. They happen all the time. So life is often very traumatic and it's a lot to process and causes a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, uh, all kinds of things can happen. Political instability causes great trauma and anxiety. But underneath all of that, the deepest one is the fear of death. That's what causes us neurosis. Um, Freud obviously talks about, um, uh, Freud and Reich talked about fear of sexual release and sexual repression is underlying anxiety, but it's deeper than that. And, and obviously sex and death are, are neck and neck, right? Thanateros. Mm -hmm. Scorpio. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. But the, the release, um, and this is what I will say. Um, People need not be anxious about death. I don't, I don't think they should be, right? Like my personal experience is that death is the ultimate orgasm, right? I think that it's a, the ultimate release, release from the, the strain of existence. Existence is hard. Now, please don't mistake what I'm saying. What I'm, not, I'm not saying that death is a good thing or that we should be rushing to die or something like that. that would, that's not what I'm saying uh, because um, you can't just relinquish into the void it's like to make the you know to misinterpret the whole buddhist idea as oh well if existence is bad then why don't we all just die no it's like that's not the point at all i mean the point is to the point is to live a life and perfect it and make it as good as possible so that you can die happy right so that you can release 
this existence having used it to its utmost and having lived it to its utmost, right? I mean, the whole point of spirituality is to be able to face death with a smile, right? And I think that unless we can do that, it, it's nonsense, right? I mean, like, what else is there, right? Collecting robes and knowledge and fucking, like, experiences, like a resume so that we can, like, compare them with other people and be spiritual materialists, like Chogun Trungpa said? You know, is it about collecting grades or becoming this, that, or the other? It's not, spirituality is not about becoming something. It's about being okay with releasing what you are. That's my opinion of it. Now, in terms of what actually happens in the death experience, um, I think the Bardo map of the Tibetans is a, is a very good map. It's certainly fascinating. It, it makes sense. But ultimately, we, we don't know, right? We don't know. Um, I mean, I could go on a whole rant about the Bardo forever, but I don't know if you, if you want to suffer that. No, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I would some other time, though, because yeah. I, I love that, too, and, and can be right there with you. Okay. So I had a, I had a couple of questions, if I can jump in here, Nish. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to know, I don't know where I wrote it down. I had a couple of questions. So <clears throat> uh, it's about your book, book questions. But probably none you've never been asked, because <laughs> I'm weird. Cool. Um, when you were a kid, did you have any, any kind of experiences with paranormal activity or? Sure. UFO, okay. Anything that, as you think back to that now, after you've written your book, can you relate any of that activity back to what you've learned or what you've experienced? That's an interesting question. You think about that. Um, yes and no. Yes, there's a lot of very, very clear stuff, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to keep most of it to myself. Okay. Right. Uh, but broadly more broadly put i will definitely say um let me think about this a, a yes uh, is sufficient I, I just my thinking is that these entities the angels for instance are not in our timeline not in our linear time right they exist outside of that so once you've engaged them there's no reason they can't go back through your timeline and do stuff oh yeah no, I agree with yeah, that. Yeah, so but I, I think that's that's why you know, be careful what you start, particularly with Enochian. You know, it's like, I think I think you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, um, magic is nonlinear; it exists, you know, outside the circles of time, as Kenneth right. Grant so famously put it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's absolutely correct. One of my students asked me about this recently. They, were, they actually they asked me, "Did do you have a whole? Do you think that Peter Carroll, uh, Peter Carroll's concept of retroactive enchantment is real?" And I said, "Yeah." I think it is, but it's not exactly quite that linear. It's basically what you said. It's that like, you know, something, if you interact with something that's outside of time, it gets to interact with your entire timeline. Mm -hmm. um, and regardless but, if it likes you or not. <laughs> well, I mean, well, that's, you know, I mean, could happen. Hence the, the importance of making, making sure you know who your designated higher power is. Exactly. But I think that uh, for, for me personally, uh, you know, my, my life has been, 
you know, very closely entwined with this entire work. It's like, it's not something that I could have put down. You know, the whole, the whole, not just D and Enochian, but the entire Western magical tradition has essentially been the core theme of my life since I was a teenager. And it wasn't, you know, I never joined the OTO. I never joined, you know, I never joined organized hermetic groups. I was a chaos magician. I did, I was, but all the people, all the other magicians I was interacting with, none of them were hermetic magicians. They were all interested in chaos magic or Voodoo or NLP or something like that. Um, uh, but the D specifically, and particularly since I read Francis Yates' book, The Rosicrucian Enlightenment, when I was like, I think 20 or 21, um, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it took over my life, you know, in, in a way that I didn't have full control over, I don't think. Um, I'm wondering if maybe you had some lineage connection or something to D, maybe you're his reincarnation. <laughs> well, that, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Straight, many, many, yeah, I, I'll, I, 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 like, one of the, by the way, one of the reasons why I said, like, I don't want to, like, I try to keep close to the chest on that also is because, you know, it's like, it's too easy to say things that sound outlandish and of course, cartoony. No, of course. And, and your personal reality is your personal reality. And we don't want to steal that from you. I don't want people to think it's because it's behind a paywall. No, 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 no. Yeah. I get it. It's a personal thing. I totally <laughs> understand. Yeah. All right. Those are my questions, Nish. I have a couple. So if you're willing to go there before we take the questions from the, the chat, um, a couple woo-woo questions, Jason. Okay. Sure. <laughs> so what, is, what are your sure. thoughts on, and of course, as with everything here, we're, this is just pondering. And, I, you know, I need, just always need to reiterate that. We're just, we're just pondering. It's fodder. And people need to not take everything so seriously, right? Um, Anyway, what are your thoughts on space? Is it real? Is it water? What, you know, like, where do you land on that? All this chatter that goes on about it. Space is in outer space or the element space? Outer space or inner, not inner space, but yeah, that which is, a, you know, above us where the stars live and the moon and the celestial bodies are. Is it real? I'm just asking. There's a lot of people say it's not. so. People say you it's know, not real. Yes, there's a huge were amount. A were they <laughs> on a skeptical skeptico podcast? <laughs> not yet. No, no comment. Um, okay, so okay, we'll go from there. What about the moon landing? I, I worked for Buzz Aldrin. Yes, of course it was real. Okay, so this is why I said woo woo. Uh, um, what about the stuff that is going on allegedly in Antarctica? What's going on in Antarctica? That there's some sort of, you know, they had... I didn't get the Facebook invite. Well, they had, you know, big world leaders are, have been going there during key times, and there's all this exposure about possible earlier civilizations with um, advanced tech, you know, the whole Nazis went there looking for advanced tech, all that stuff. Uh, well, the Nazis definitely did go there. Uh, and, and named some parts of it in terms of advanced tech. I, uh, I, I, I don't know. I doubt it. I think that, um, uh, what, what is real 
in terms of advanced tech and things like that that I can tell you about, which is quite frightening, is New Zealand. You know, the fact that all of the, and this is well, you know, well documented, all the richest people in the world, like people who go to Davos in Switzerland and, thing, and things like that, are, are hard at work building bolt holes in New Zealand. And maybe in Antarctica, for all we know, it's possible. Um, where you know all the most well, all the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world right now are convinced that the apocalypse is nigh. Food's going to run out. There's going to be mass food riots, and that everyone will be coming after them first. So they want to <laughs> no, it's a real thing. So they they're they're basically building underground bunkers in New Zealand where they can hang out with their buddies and wait out the apocalypse. It's kind of crazy. Well, it's really crazy. Douglas Rushkoff just wrote an article for I think the Atlantic, but it was also on Medium where he talks about being brought into a meeting of like hyper, hyper billionaires, like 0.01% percenters who were kind of asking him like, how do we, you know, how do we survive the apocalypse? Because they're all convinced that everyone's going to be out for blood uh, and they're all trying to get to Mars. They want Elon Musk to, you know, get them to Mars did you ever see that movie um, Elysium? Yeah, yes. Damon? Su- suggesting, yes. Yeah. That's basically what's happening, right? That's what they're trying to do. You know, if they could do that, they would. You know, be living in an O'Neill colony off-world. This, um, this is a- that, that's crazy, right? It's like, what have you considered actually trying to like fix the problems here? <laughs> it, it is crazy, and that's one reason why I don't think it's true. I think maybe they have you know bug out shelters, if you will, but I don't think anyone's going to. Sur- if there's some kind of cataclysm, no one's going to survive. And if you do, you don't want to, you know? <laughs> well, it'll probably be, you know what, you know what'll happen? It's like, it'll probably be the people you least expect, right? You know, it's like the whole thing about the roaches inherit the earth, you know? It's like, you think the richest and most powerful people are going to survive the apocalypse? No, they're too dependent on, on too many uh, technologies and medicines and things like that. Yeah. It's like going to be people in the ghetto who, who survive, you know, people who live in the slums at Rio de Janeiro, people who are a, a, accustomed to, chaotic conditions you know right. will, will survive right that's what i think is going to happen facebook goes so, down for a week and the world goes ape shit right i mean the, the extent to which particularly the, the rich people in the first world have outsourced nearly all of their life functions to technology yes. if there was an emp pulse how functional would any of us be right right if that's true about emp pulses so or, or you know yeah i know, internet I know. Went, yeah internet what down if- is becoming- what about where do you stand with all of this kind of ET alien narrative um, stuff that's always circling? I don't think that it's mathematically possible for there not to be aliens. In fact, I would be shocked if the whole universe wasn't teeming with life. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, uh, you know, most of the, like the disclosure crowd, stuff like that, like a lot of them are real. Um, I don't know. I haven't looked into a lot of it, but there's a lot of that stuff that's just kind of preying on vulnerable people or selling, trying to sell something or Definitely. You know, giving people something to believe in. It's, it's, it's like another religion. It's become another religion. So, yeah, exactly. um, Loose space chickens. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> that one's for Chanter and, and, yeah, you got, and Lee. <laughs> you don't even want to know. There's a, a group of people. Corey like, Good. One of the Crap. larger groups of UFO people have a following built around some blue aliens, blue avian aliens. Oh, oh, oh! I think I've heard of, I've heard about that. Yeah. It's bollocks. Yeah, it's a it's well, a cult in and of itself, which is just okay. founded yeah. in a comic book, totally. essentially. 
in in LA, one of the one of the weird things that's happened in LA. Maybe people will stop doing this, but uh, in the New Age world in LA, which I do my very best to insulate myself from, they, um, people got very into thinking that they were aliens, and people would like literally at parties be like, "Oh, like what type of alien are you?" Like as if they were incarnated aliens on in the Earth plane or something. There's like that. a whole lot oh, of that dear. going on. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah, you need to watch YouTube more often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or not. Oh, Jason, stay away. <laughs> Danger. Or an Arcturian. My favorite. Or... My favorite YouTube genre is this. May this this may date me a bit because it's it may have passed by now. But there was this YouTube genre of, um, like high schoolers like putting up spells to turn themselves into mermaids and vampires. Does this sound familiar? No. No, it sounds it interesting. Sounds... It was like literally. It, It'd be like some kid with a YouTube. It's like if you go in the mirror and recite, you know, I'm a mermaid of the deepest blue waters five times in the mirror, you will turn into a mermaid. Oh, wow. But totally sincere. Like yeah. not like not as like a, you know, just like. But totally, now you like, could do this in dream. See, we could we could just shift over. And right. there you go. And I guess there there is the example and a good wrap up too. It's you know it's all murky water in the end, <laughs> and it's all subjective. Do you is have it, any questions, Jerry, have, from I the got chat? One question from Lee, which is like way in left left field here. Um, have you ever done EST or landmark or life spring workshops? No, I've had tons of people try to rope me into that thing, but um, I've I got good cult detectors. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Yeah, good for you. Same here. Yeah. Yeah, mod was that's true. All right, great. Well, that's Landmark people are super pushy about trying to get more people into it. And that's oh, always a it's so uh, yeah, that is like a big red flag when it's getting pushed on you. You know, you could suck a talk into the same cult members day after day. I wanted to congratulate you on the depth and size of this book you created mm -hmm. that you've been touring. Anyone can hear you anywhere right now talking about it, but that's a major feat. And um, I bow to you on that and, and can't wait to dig into it. Yeah, I have it. Thank I've you. already started it. Please, uh, if you'd like to talk about it or plug it, go right ahead. Um, we talked yeah, about, you know, talking about much. So the book is called John D and the Empire of Angels. It's out now from Inner Traditions. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it at my website for it, which is johnd007.com. And it's a, you know, it's almost 600 pages long. And it's a massive hardback. And what it it's a it's a biography of John D who's the most, you know, kind of the greatest magician in world history who lived in the 16th century in England and is responsible for creating modern science, for creating the British Empire, and, and doing magic for 10 years to talk to angels, believe it or not. And he, uh, but what that book really is, by the way, is the history of Western magic. It's like the one book that explains the whole thing. And what that means, what that really means is, this book is, you know, if you want to understand reality, if you want to understand where we've come from, what magic is, what, what, Western civilization is, what America is, what England is, why world is the way it is. This book explains the whole thing. It shows how our entire world is a magic spell that was created 500 years ago that we're all living in. Mm. Uh, and shows how we, we might need to become magicians too to break out of it and live our own dreams instead of somebody else's. So it's John D and the Empire of Angels. It's been getting really good, uh, great reviews. I think it's already, it's, last time I checked, it was already in its fourth printing. Um, and 
I, I hope that people really enjoy it. Uh, it's, I spent three years on it and it's the greatest possible book I could have written. I put everything into it. So I'm glad that I'm glad you guys are digging it. Yeah, I'm totally. Yeah, it's, I'm, it's masterful. Great. It, it actually made, has made me think of another show idea, which I'll talk to you about afterwards. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much, Jason, for joining us. It was great having you here. Um, thank we you. really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone in the audience. Thank you, Nish. How and also, Jason, how can people get a hold of you in general, your website? I have all the links. Okay. So, best place to go is jasonlube.com, and that's got all my projects there. Of course, it's got my social media, so Twitter and Instagram and all that. Um, it's also got my podcast, which I'm now running, which I do every week, which is just Ultra Culture with Jason Louv. That's linked there also. Um, and my school, magic.me, my school for magic, where I teach all this stuff, including lucid dreaming, uh, chaos magic, all of that, uh, ceremonial magic, astral travel, everything, tarot, I Ching, it's all there. You can find that linked there. And also, if you, if you want to stay in touch with me and you want to learn more about my work, really the best thing that you can do is sign up for my free course on magic which is a, a free, it's a one week email course where I lay out all the basics of, of magic and meditation and active dreaming and all of that stuff. And you can get that very easily. All you have to do is text the word shaman, S-H-A-M-A-N to the phone number 44222. So it's the word shaman to the phone number 44222. If you're in, if you're in the U.S., if you're not in the U.S., just go to jasonlube.com. You'll find Extra a link there. Extra data charges may apply. Yeah, <laughs> I actually took your magic class when it first came out. The uh, I thought it was chaos magic. It was yeah. last year, late last year. It was good. I really enjoyed it. Shaman two four two two. Yeah, the the word shaman to the phone number four four two two two. Four four two two. Got it. Okay, it's in the notes now. All right, great. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, this Jason. was fantastic. Yeah, it was and, great hanging out with you guys. I, I really enjoyed it. Great. And uh, be, be sure to tune in next week. We're going to have Laird Scranton here. We're going to have some interesting discussions about Dogon Dreams. So anyway, everyone, oh, wow. have a great evening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.